Well, if you're visiting with us for the first time or maybe even the second time, thank you for being here. We're so glad that you're here. And if you're over in the venue right now or watching or listening on the internet, welcome to you as well. Uh, Pastor Rick Countryman is, is on a little getaway with his wife and getting a well-needed uh, little retreat this weekend. My name is, is Rick Thompson. I'm Rick number two, not to be confused with Rick number one. I realize we both look big and strong. I'm Rick number two. Well, listen, we're in a series entitled uh, Seven Letters that Pastor Rick has been leading us in. And these seven letters are found in, in Revelation chapters two and three. In fact, if you have your Bibles with you, I would ask you to turn there today. Revelation, we'll be looking at Revelation chapter two, beginning with verse 18. And each of these letters is, is addressed to a particular first century church in the Roman province of Asia Minor. And all of them address a specific concern that uh, was true for those churches and most certainly is true for our lives today. And I believe that the Lord has something that he longs to say to us. Whenever we open up the word of God, God speaks. The issue is whether or not we hear. These seven letters express Jesus' care they express his concern for his church and for you and for me. They're really love letters, love letters that are addressed to us. And over the last uh, six weeks, previous six weeks, Pastor Rick has, has walked us through the first three of those letters, the, which he's entitled The Busy Church, The Suffering Church, The Confused Church. And today we look at letter number four, love letter number four, that uh, we will address as the tolerant church. As we begin, I'd like for you to listen to these words as I read, and they're found in, in verse three of chapter one. So as this book begins, these are the words that are addressed to us. I'd like for you to listen, and then I'd like for you to read them with me aloud the second time around. Listen as I read. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Would you read those words with me now aloud? Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. I'm going to ask us to bow our heads and we're going to pray now. And, and as I pray, I'm going to pray, want to pray for a family. Some of you will know this family. They attend during this hour. Yesterday, Pete Baker uh, went home to be with the Lord in the afternoon. And so we want to lift, uh, lift him up. Lift up Helen and all of the family. So would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, we just acknowledge this morning our need for you, each and every one of us, that we need you to be our all in all. Because, Lord, we are weak and we're helpless without you. And I know right now, Lord, that for the Baker family, that is exactly how they feel. Please be their helper, Lord, their strength, Grant them your grace, your grace upon grace upon grace. 
and your peace, Lord. Bless them today. And Lord, be our teacher now. May your Holy Spirit speak through your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1974, I was in Europe, and I received a letter from a girl that I'd been dating for about six months. And uh, at the end of that letter, it was about seven pages long, at the end of that letter, it said this. It concluded with the words, love, Yvonne. And uh, I had never seen that written or heard that expressed. And so when I got that letter, you can imagine uh, what was welling up inside of me. It was all good. And uh, I read that letter over and over and over again because she expressed to me her love for me. And uh, it wasn't long after that, well, about two years later, that, uh, that pretty girl became my lovely wife. And uh, I share that with you this morning because that's what these seven letters are to us. In fact, that's what this entire book is to us. It is God's love letter to us. And these are seven specific love letters that God communicates to us, his care, his concern, the longing of his heart, introduces himself so that ultimately we might know him. And he reveals himself so that we can know him. And what I want you to see this morning is, is first of all, in verse 18, again, we're in Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church of Thyatira, that Jesus reveals his character to us. Look at verse 18 with me. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus is revealing himself And the book of Revelation itself begins with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that could be true of every book of the Bible, because the Bible is the revelation of Jesus to us. And this revelation, this great revelation, these love letters that Jesus writes to us, he's simply choosing to reveal himself to us so that we might know him. He wants us to know him. He longs that we would know him intimately and and have a relationship of intimate love with him because he loves us and he longs that we would love him back and that we would know him. And you know, the better we know him, the more we can't help but love him. And that's what Christianity, this faith of ours, is all about. It's all about knowing Jesus. It's all about a relationship with him. It's not a religion. It's a relationship, a relationship that God allows us to enter into with the one who loves us most. And we could never know him. We could never know this God that we know apart from him revealing himself first to us. And that's what Jesus is doing in each of these letters. Throughout the Bible, Jesus bears numerous names, numerous titles that reveal his character, reveal his personality, reveal his uh, nature, and each description of Jesus 
in the book of Revelation, in the letters we're reading now, throughout the scripture itself all the way through, is a revelation to us of his glory because he's glorious, of his majesty because he's majestic, of his power because he is almighty. And he longs that we would know him. And so Jesus begins, as he does with the other seven letters, by revealing his character. The, the outline today is pretty simple, and it's really an outline that, that, that flows through all of the other letters as well. But Jesus begins by identifying himself to the church at Thyatira and to us. And he begins by saying, these are the words of the Son of God. These are the words of the Son of God. And that is a title of deity. It's referring to Jesus' divine nature as a second person of the Holy Trinity. And the scriptures teach that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who together eternally coexist as one in complete and perfect unity and total harmony, and who together are deserving of our our highest worship and adoration and greatest love. You know, I, I loved being right down front here today because I was getting the stereophonic sound from the choir and orchestra and all of you as we worshiped the one who's deserving of all of our worship and all of our love because he loves us. This... Uh, this title, Son of God, appears 39 times in the New Testament, and no one else bears this title, only Jesus. He is the Son of God. Then Jesus describes himself as whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Eyes like blazing fire, these two, and, and feet like burnished bronze. These two descriptions of Jesus really are symbolic of of attributes of his deity, his relationship within the Godhead. And they, they symbolize this first one, the eyes of blazing fire. They symbolize the characteristic or the attribute of his omniscience, the fact that Jesus is all-knowing. There's nothing that he does not see. There is nowhere that his, his light does not penetrate into darkness. It penetrates any and all darkness. There's nothing that's hidden from his eyes. There's nothing that he does not know. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He sees all things, and he knows all things. He is the Son of God. And feet like burnished bronze symbolize his divine power and his strength, his omnipotence. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is the almighty God. He's all-knowing and he is all-powerful. And later in the book of Revelation, John, who's the writer of this book, he describes the magnificent vision of Jesus' second coming when he will come again to this earth, and it's coming. He'll come again to bring his final judgment against all evil and all sin and listen to what John writes as he describes this vision in Revelation 19, verse 11. There we read, I saw heaven, John says, standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, titles of Jesus. And with justice he judges, his, his, 
His judgments will always be with justice. And he makes war. He makes war on what? He's making war on evil. He's making war on sin. He's making war on Satan. He's making war on all that has been wrong in this world in which we live. And on that final day, it says, not, he, it says, with justice he judges and makes war. And then notice again this phrase, his eyes are like blazing fire. He sees all. There's nothing he's missed. He knows everything. Why will his justice be, be, be just? His judgments be just? Because he's omniscient. There's nothing that he's not seen. He knows it all. And thus his final judgment will be with absolute justice, his omniscience. It ensures and it guarantees that his judgment will be totally just and totally righteous. And nothing less than that. There will be nothing that his eyes have missed or that his knowledge is somehow lacking. Absolutely nothing. And his judgments will be just and righteous because he is just and he is righteous. And John continues to describe this, this vision of Jesus' return in verse 15, telling us he, that is Jesus, treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Remember, feet like burnished bronze. That day is approaching when Jesus will come in all of his glory and all of his mighty power to conquer and to crush the power of Satan and of sin once and for all and forever. And I look forward to that day. How about you? And on that day, the Bible declares that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Under, on heaven above, on earth, and under the earth, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ. On that day, the kingdoms of the earth will be no more. And on that day, the kingdom of Christ will be ushered in, in all of its majesty, in all of its glory, forever and ever and ever. And again, I look forward to that day. Would you read with me again? Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Let's read that together. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Jesus reveals his character. And in verse 19, Jesus now reveals to his church and to us his commendation, his commendation. Jesus says, I, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Jesus commended them for their love and their faith, for their service and their perseverance that were continually growing. And you know what? He commends you and he commends me. He commends us in that same way because he is the one, who, again, who is all-knowing. He sees those acts of, of love. He sees those responses of faith. He sees those works of service. He sees every effort to persevere on our parts as well. He sees it. 
and it pleases him greatly. It brings him great joy, delight, and happiness. And as he commended the Thyatira believers, listen, he commends you too. And the day is coming when, when you know what, we're going to hear some words. They're going to be pretty magnificent words. Well done, good and faithful servant to those of us who have lived our lives for him. My uh, daughter posted on Facebook this week uh, a little thing that I want to share with you. Here's what uh, she wrote. On our, way, on our way home today, we decided to pick up a pizza to eat for dinner. We drove by a full family with three little kids standing on the corner of the street with a homeless sign. My son, who's my grandson, and this is our oldest, six years old, was very upset to see this. And we started talking about what that little family might be going through. And he said this, I think we need, Mom, to bring them food, maybe get an extra pizza. And I asked him, do you think that's what God would want us to do? To which he immediately responded, definitely. So we picked up the pizzas and drove back to the corner, but the family was gone. Then I spotted them, trudging further down the road with heads hung, pushing their cart of belongings. And we pulled up beside them to hand them the pizza. And the tears I saw in the young father's eyes as he said, God bless you so much, told me, God had indeed prompted our boy to bless this family. God sees our every act of love, our every response of faith, our every work of service, our every effort to persevere, and it brings him great joy and happiness. When I read this, it brought this father great joy and happiness. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 25. He told the story of three tenants or three servants that he had entrusted with talents. And he was going away on a long journey. And he said, I want you to use these. I want you to multiply them. I want you to use them for good. After a long period of time, he came back. Two of them had, one had not. When Jesus returned, when the master returned, and the two who did heard that, who had, here's what they heard. Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. And how we live our lives makes a difference. Not only here, but in heaven, in the heart of our Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your happiness. I'd like you to read with me again Revelation 1.3. Let's read together. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near.
Third thing I want you to see is that Jesus reveals his correction. You know, in the letter that I, I wrote to you, um, or that I didn't write to you, that my wife wrote to me back in 1974, where she concluded by saying, love Yvonne, she added something onto the end of that, love Yvonne. In parentheses, she phonetically spelled out her name so that I might pronounce it correctly. <laughs> and again, we'd only been dating six months, so I don't know why she felt she needed to correct me so early on in our relationship. <laughs> I don't know if I was calling her Avon, Yvonne, Yvonne, Avon, I don't know, but it evidently wasn't Yvonne. But I guarantee you I got it right after that because I knew she loved me. She had just told me she loved me. And I've not had it wrong since then. You know, Yvonne has had to correct me a time or two, I imagine, since then. You would know. And I've known she's always done it in love. I know, I've known that she's always done it for the benefit of our relationship. And sometimes I struggled with it, maybe feeling embarrassed or some shame and and sometimes even some anger and some resentment. But I would get over it because I always knew that she loved me. Listen to these words of correction now that Jesus writes in verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Listen, when God tells you that something needs to be changed, he tells you and corrects you always because he loves you and always because he's right and always because it is good for you and what is best for your relationship, our relationship with him. And that is why he corrects us. And the issue that Jesus is correcting here to the believers in Thyatira was the problem of toleration. It's a big issue. And it is a big issue today for us as believers. And these believers were tolerating a woman symbolically named Jezebel, I don't believe that was her name, who called herself a prophetess and who claimed to speak for God, but that was anything but true. She was a false teacher. She was misleading believers into sexual immorality and into spiritual idolatry, leading them away from God. And God does not tolerate sin of any kind. And neither should we. In the book of 1 Kings, we find the account of Jezebel uh, of the Old Testament. The namesake, no doubt, for this Jezebel we find here in the book of Revelation. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, 31, we find and discover her, her evil influence. Listen as I read. Ahab, and Ahab, by the way, was the king of Israel. 
He was the nation's president. And he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And there was a lot of evil before him because there's always been evil. But he did more. And listen to kind of how it came about. Not only, he not only considered it trivial, he considered trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel. He considered that trivial. And one trivialness read, led to another trivialness, if that's, those are even words. And he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And look at the result. And began to serve Baal and to worship him. He knew better. He knew God's law. He knew that he, he was not to marry where he married. But he thought it's just trivial. And he tolerated that trivialness. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. And through Jezebel's evil influence, Baal worship spread not only to a king, but to an entire nation. Toleration of evil is never trivial. Toleration of sin, no matter how trivial it may seem, is never trivial. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25, where we've, we find a little bit more here. There's a lot, long story, but listen to these words. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then listen to this, urged on, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. And that's what toleration of sin always does. That's always what it leads to. It always urges you on to more and to more and to more, to greater and to greater and to greater. And Jezebel's foreign and false beliefs influenced the king, and this led to an entire nation, an entire nation being led into idolatry, straying away from their God, and ultimately led them into captivity and exile as a result of tolerating, thinking this thing was little, it's just trivial. And an entire nation was led into captivity and exile eventually. The word tolerate in our Greek language, it means something different than the word we hear used today. Here's how it's defined here in God's word. It means to let go or to let be. Just to let it go, let it be. It's just trivial. It's just a little thing. It doesn't really matter. God says it matters. It matters big time. It matters in the life of a nation. It mattered in the life of a church that he's addressing here. It matters in our families. It matters in our own lives. Sin is never trivial. It's never to be tolerated. In 1983, I flew to Seoul, Korea, and and uh, we had a layover in Anchorage, Alaska. 
And as we waited in the, the waiting area, there was a tension there, you could cut it with a knife. And uh, the reason was, was because one week to the day, same time, same place before us, the same flight number, the same flight pattern, uh, something drastically happened. Korean Airlines Flight 007 was, was lost at sea. It was a Boeing 747. Every passenger aboard was lost, never found. And so we knew that. And, uh, and what happened was, in essence, this, they believe, that somehow there was the slightest of navigational errors as they, they took off. And that slight error, that trivial little error, eventually as they traveled from Anchorage to Seoul, kept expanding and expanding and expanding until Flight 007, Korean Airlines Flight 007, the week before us, ventured into uh, enemy territory, into Soviet airspace, and two Russian MiGs with heat-seeking missiles shot it out of the air. No fraction of sin is ever trivial. It always leads over enemy territory. In this case, with Jezebel, it led over into sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. Would you read again with me, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. You know, someone has well said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you far, far more than you could ever pay. The fourth thing that Jesus reveals is his command to this church. Look at verse 21 through 25 with me. I have given her time, that is Jezebel, to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called secrets. I will impose, not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. In these verses, Jesus is addressing two groups of believers in Thyatira. The first are those who tolerated Jezebel's deception. And deception just means a lie. 
her false teaching, her false truth. All false teaching, all lies come from Satan, who's called the deceiver of the brethren. He can deceive us. Every New Testament book gives warning to deception. He's called the father of lies, the great deceiver. That's where it emanates. That's where it comes from. And, and so he speaks to these who were deceived and thus drifting into enemy territory over enemy waters, the waters of sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. And Jesus' words may sound wicked. They may sound spiteful. But know that Jesus' words are never such. His words are, are the thunderous screams of warning them and warning us of imminent danger that ultimately can lead to death. If a correction to the course you travel is not made. Sexual sin will always lead to a bed of suffering. Some of you know that very well. My family history, I know that very, very well. And those who commit adultery will suffer intensely. Again, my family history, I know that very, very well. And to death. I don't think the death here is biological children. I think it's those who are followers of Jezebel's deception. And I know it leads to death. It leads to spiritual death in our relationship with the Lord, if we know him. So that communication's cut off, relationship is, just seems to not be there, and it's blocked because sin blocks our relationship with God. It leads to emotional death. I know. It leads to relational death with those who are closest around you. I know. And it can lead to even physical death. That's what sexual sin can do. That's the end result, always. And to this first group, Jesus' command is clear. He just simply says, you must repent. Jezebel refused to repent. The word repent is found five times in these seven letters. And it's found several more times after these seven letters through the book of Revelation. Every time afterwards, it's referring to those and speaking of, of those who refuse to repent, like Jezebel refused to repent. Jesus' first message after his baptism, when he, he first preached, here was his message, very first message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And his message has not changed. What does it mean to repent? It's an interesting word. It's a compound word in the original language. It it's simply means change and mind. And you put those two together, the word simply means you've got to change your mind. To repent is you are going the wrong direction. You are moving in a place where destruction and death is imminent. You've got to turn around <laughs> because if you don't, nothing good is going to transpire. Nothing good is going to happen. And so these are Jesus' words to them. 
And so we're to change our minds about the direction we're going, and then we're to take action to plot a new course. Sorrow is not repentance. The Bible says that godly sorrow, it leads to repentance, but sorrow in and of itself is not repentance. I've been sorrowful for a lot of sins that didn't lead me to repentance. Repentance, again, is changing your mind about the direction you're going and taking then some action to plot a new course, to turn around and to get out of there. Let me share with you how this has kind of worked in in my life uh, some over the years. It first took place on July 16, 1972, when I walked forward at the end of a service one night, and I felt uh, my palms were sweaty and my mouth was dry, kind of like how I feel right now. (laughs) And, uh, And I knew the Lord had been speaking to me. And I knew he'd been speaking to me for a long time, but I'd never done anything about it. And on that night, I knew I needed to do something about it. And I walked forward, I met with somebody, and I'll never forget that night when I confessed my sins, I repented, and I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. That was over 41 years ago. And my life's never been the same since. When you repent, when you come to Jesus, when you change your mind, when you turn around, he'll meet you. And your life will never be the same again. Years later, as a believer, in fact, uh, as a pastor in Dallas, Texas, our son today is 27, and, and it was right around the time of his birth. And uh, again, I, I, I know what sexual immorality can lead to in a family. I know that firsthand from uh, my growing up family situation. And the Bible says that the sins of the father can be passed on to the sins of the, you know, to the son, to the third and fourth generation. And I was listening to a radio program, I believe it was, but it was Chuck Swindoll, and what I remember is he was speaking to pastors, and he was saying, pastors, if you're struggling in the area of sexual temptation, he said, I'm gonna challenge you to do something about it. That or get out. And sexual sin is probably the number one reason pastors leave the ministry. It took down King David. It's a giant killer. And it it kills. And I knew in my life I needed to do something about that. And so I, I, I went to my wife. And I'll never forget that day. And I shared some things with her. And I'll remember her, I remember her tears. And I went then to my pastor, and he kind of laughed a little bit. That's kind of who he was, but he wasn't laughing at me. He just kind of understood things as a guy. And, uh, and though I had confessed this sin a thousand times until I was blue in the face, I really had no victory. But on that day, something happened. And all these years later, something's been different. And God gives victory when we change our mind and we take action. 
we take action to move toward him, that's when he meets us with all of his power and all of his strength, which we don't have in and of ourselves to ever gain the victory he gives to us. And we can't, doesn't mean that I as a guy still don't struggle with some of those kind of things. But how I struggled then and how I struggle today, ah, not even close, not even close. Martin Luther said, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep him from building a nest there. And that's what repentance allows you to do. This idea of idolatry, four years ago this month, <laughs> I, was, uh, I, had, I was in an ambulance four different times, ended up in four different hospitals, and finally they put a little thing in my chest here, keep my heart ticking right. And as I lay in that hospital bed one night, I just, Lord, what, what's going on? And I sensed the Lord say this to me that night, Rick, you've got to make a choice. You've got to make a change. Is it going to be me? Or is it going to be golf? Love the game of golf. But you know what? I loved it way too much. And even things that you love that aren't bad in and of themselves can strangle your relationship with others that are close to you. They can strangle your relationship with God. And it, will it be God or will it be golf? And on that night, well, I made a decision. I talked to my wife. She has, you know, every year had been buying me these passes as gift. And I said, no more passes. Couldn't play for three months, which is really good after, after my surgery. But I didn't play for about two years. And now when I play, I really enjoy it. Doesn't really matter what my score is. I never practice. Just go out and hit. That wasn't the case before. And this last week, God revealed something to me. And that is my tolerance, my failure to take a stand on some issues that are pretty big issues in our land. And, and to not speak up, for my voice to be silent. To just, it's trivial. Oh, really? Look at the nation. Look at our nation. And he's speaking to the church. And he spoke to me. This last week I wrote a letter, or I did an email to a government official and simply communicated, again, what I believe to be the truth. God said, Rick, don't tolerate. I do not tolerate sin. And you're not to either. Because what it leads to is never, never, never good. And I love you too much to allow you to go on like that. The second group that Jesus speaks to, he addresses, he addressed were believers who refused to succumb to the lies of the evil one. They, they remained faithful and to them, his command was simply this, hold on, hold on, hold on to what you have until I come. In other words, hang on, don't give up. Just do whatever it takes. Hold on to me, hold on to me, Jesus is saying. Hold on to my truth and it will be worth it. Don't give up. 
Hang on. Remain faithful. I'm faithful to you. Remain faithful to me. Hold on to what you have until I come. Would you read with me again Revelation 1.3? Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And finally, then, Jesus reveals his commitment, his commitment to us. Listen to his words, beginning in verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, notice what he says you'll do, I will give authority over the nations. And then verse 27 is, is an Old Testament passage referring to Jesus' coming reign yet to come as Lord of lords and King of kings. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery when he comes on that day of judgment. And the nations of this world are no more and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is ushered in once and for all. And he said, just as I have received authority from my Father, I will give authority to you who overcome. So I will give authority to him who overcomes. Later in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus writes these words. No longer will there be any curse. Now there is. But no longer the day is coming when Jesus returns, when that curse, the, the curse of life, the curse on this world, the curse on our lives will be done away with once and forever. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. There will be no more night. Why? For the Lord God will give them light. He will be the light. There will be no more need for sun and moon and stars because the Father and the Son are light. And then he says, again, of this commitment of us and they, that's us, will reign forever and ever and ever with him. Is that amazing or what? I'm not sure what that means yet, but I'm looking forward to finding out. The second promise, the second commitment he gives, again, the first, I will give him authority to him who overcomes, and then the second one, wow, I will give the morning star to him who overcomes. I will give the morning star to him who overcomes. What's the morning star? Well, again, John tells us later in Revelation, listen to Revelation 22, the last chapter of this book, verse 16, I, Jesus have sent my angel to give this testimony for the churches, for all the churches. I am the morning star. Jesus' promise, Jesus' commitment is that we will reign with him someday, that we will be with him the morning star. We will have power somehow, his power. We will have presence, his presence for all eternity, forever and ever. He will come as the reigning Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And for those who are overcomers, for those who are victorious, this is his promise. This is commitment. Jesus is committed to you like you cannot believe. So who are overcomers? Well, John the writer tells us, back up just a couple books, 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? John asks. 
Only he, only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the overcomer. That is the one to whom Jesus' commitment, his promises, will never fail. That is the one who will be victorious with him in his reign forever and ever and ever. Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? He loves you. He loves you so much. And if you've never received Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, today would be a great day for you to do that. Again, for me, it was July 16, 1972. And in just a moment, as our service ends, if you've never invited Jesus into your heart, I want to invite you maybe to come forward as I did on that day and go to our altar back here. Just some great people back there. It's not a scary thing. They'll sit down with you and they'll pray with you. And they'll help you to know what it means to become an overcomer. Jesus overcame sin for us that we might know him and his greatest desire that we would love him. And those of us who know him, I'll tell you what, there's nothing greater in life than knowing Jesus, the one who loved you so much that he created you, the one who loved you so much that he died on the cross for you, the one who loves you so much that he's coming again for you. Would you read Revelation 1-3 one more time with me? Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. We've read it. I hope that you've heard it with more than just your physical ears, but with your heart and that you will take to heart what Jesus has said to you today because the time is near. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. You are the Son of God. Your eyes are of blazing fire. Your feet are burnished bronze. You love us so much, Lord, that you, you correct us. And you correct us because you love us, Lord. And you're committed to us like we could never believe. And Lord, you are the God that we worship. Thank you for being in our lives. Thank you that you would call us to yourself. And Lord, I believe you've spoken today. And may those of us who need to repent today, in whatever way that may be, however you may have spoken, may we have boldness and courage to take that step to turn around and to come to you, the one who receives us and who loves us with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name we pray.